0: Welcome to Bell Curve with Mary Scott, Rachel, and Liz, three friends, three
1: Southern Bells, joining you, smart women, to discuss life, work, relationships, business, everything from the nerdy to the normal, the practical to the philosophical, the head to the heart. Thanks for joining us as we observe, analyze, and often deviate from the standard. Hello there, and welcome to Bell Curve. Liz Beshear is here. Uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you all so much, all of our Curvys out there who have sent their encouragement, prayers, thoughts, let us know how they were doing, and, and asked how we were doing during the coronavirus COVID-19 crisis that has all of us locked down, stuck in our houses. Hopefully, we're all staying healthy, doing that fun social distancing that is leaving us you know, stir crazy with cabin fever but we know it's the right thing to do in the long run. Um, If there's anything that we can do here at Bell Curve to make this time a little bit easier, please just let us know. Today we are joined by a fantastic guest I'm really excited about. Her name is Dr. Jennifer Feltman and she has been at the University of Alabama as as an assistant professor of medieval art and architecture since 2016. Her research focuses on the ways in which works of medieval art, whether architecture, sculpture, or manuscripts, intersect with aspects of culture, such as intellectual history, religious practice, and political discourse. Those are some things we like here at Bell Curve. <laughs> Absolutely. Her research interests include the reuse and adaptation of sculpture, medieval eschatology, and visual art, and the education of the clergy in the 13th century, and the relation of practices of memory and visual exegesis. Did I say that right?
2: Yeah, that's funny.
1: <laughs> and visual exegesis in the creation of sculptural programs. She is writing a book that I hope we get to talk about. And, you know, I we all probably remember watching Stunned on April 15th of 2019 last year as a small fire turned into this giant inferno that engulfed Notre Dame in Paris, France countless pieces of art and artifacts of cultural and and historic and religious significance were lost in that fire. But there is some hope because thankfully we have people like Dr. Feltman here to help piece things back together. So I'm going to need some help on the French on this, but your most recent endeavor is being
2: part of the, what is the group called? Well, there's a larger group, we'll just call them the scientifique. Uh, The the scientifique uh, is a group of scientists, researchers, is basically how it translates, who have put themselves forward in service of the restoration project of Notre Dame. So the the larger group is, um, it's a grassroots group that had its genesis in the times in which we heard over Twitter just a couple of days after the fire Um, that there would be this competition to rebuild Notre Dame. This was coming from the Prime Minister of France at the time. I guess he also speaks on Twitter. And uh, uh, it was a little bit concerning for historians because some of the ideas that came forth were quite um, dramatic, to say the least. And um, we were just concerned that the historic monument be preserved and that certain practices of historic conservation, which have been established for uh, many years in terms of how you would care for a monument, that those be followed, and not just a political um, agenda in the restoration. Sure. So, yeah. so let's take I a step back you know, first. Yeah. How did, so I am,
1: I, um, I feel lucky enough to have gone to Notre Dame a couple of times and just, you know, sat there. It's just, it really is such a wonderful, beautiful, incredible place. And you could spend days in there and not see every piece of art and everything of religious and historical significance. How did you come to research Notre Dame? And, and what first turned you on to just researching uh, cathedrals and, and medieval cathedrals in general?
2: Uh, so I was doing graduate study at Florida State University, doing a PhD, and my thesis topic or my dissertation topic focused on sculptures of the Last Judgment. Um, just to step back a little bit, I've always been interested in architecture and buildings and religious history and theology and in technical aspects of the way things are built. So I, as an undergrad, I started out in mechanical engineering, made some changes, got a degree in, inter- in interior design. And I actually, I did that at the University of Alabama. Uh, Then my voyage took me to Florida State. And I found that in studying the Middle Ages, uh, I could piece together these various interests. It's an interdisciplinary period. And in order to get a sense of what was constructed in that time, you have to know a bit of um, construction technology. You have to know a bit of theology and religious history. You have to be interested in the politics of all of these things. And cathedrals as major monuments are the places where these all come together. And so um, I, I took the topic of studying last judgment sculptures and my buildings, I call them my buildings, you've become an owner of the building that you work on over time. The major buildings that have last judgments of them, Notre Dame is one of the most important. And so I first found myself in front of the portals in 2007 uh, while on some dissertation research in the summer. And that was the summer that I met an important group of people that I continue to interact with. They uh, happened to be coming from Columbia University with one of the faculty who then was the major professor of Gothic um, architecture, um, Stephen Murray. And it was his student, Andrew Tallon, who was involved in scanning, making digital scans of Notre Dame. And he, I would say is one of the pioneers of using a technology of laser scanning in the study of buildings. So I met Andrew then and um, it, and I continued to work on my projects on Last Judgements, uh, sculptures over the years. And there are of course other cathedrals, but again, this one was one of the major buildings in the history of the development of that theme. And so early on, it was um, uh, one of the ones that that I studied.
1: That's fascinating. So, ha- having spent so much time studying there, and knowing so much about not just the visual beauty of places like Notre Dame, but the the significance of the way things were built and and how special some of these artifacts are. What did it give us a little insight? What did it feel like to see? The cathedral erupt into flames.
2: It was a bit surreal. I, like many people, I was on my computer doing work, but I also had Facebook open because people do that <laughs> from time to time. People would never do that. <laughs> and, and you, you see things posted and that's where I saw, um, the first notice come up of, of this building being on fire. And I, you know, was in shock. And then I just watched my colleagues just, um, have meltdowns online about this. Um, I was also uh, was a bit sleep deprived with a four-month-old at the time as well. Oh wow! <laughs> um, I I had been working on a a big grant proposal that I had just submitted on a French building, so I was waiting to hear back about that. And all of this was happening around the same time, um, and I thought immediately, you know, this is terrible. But then uh, the historian in me also said. Every single Gothic building we have, for the most part, was, well, not every single one, but many of them were reconstructed after a notorious fire. Mm. Uh, The Cathedral of Chartres is an example. Uh, We had a terrible fire in the 1190s and 1194. It's the fire that ignites the rebuilding campaign. So it's used um, as a motivator to motivate the populace uh, or at least That's the uh, popular idea to motivate or support the funding of reconstruction. I also know from some of the other buildings that I work on that these things don't just happen in the Middle Ages, they happen now. Uh, We know that Chart again burned in the 19th century, the the roof burned and it was reconstructed in the 19th century um, of, of a steel frame inside. Um, the Cathedral of Reims was bombed in 1914 during the World War. Its roof burned as well, mm-hmm. and they reconstructed it using a new technique at the time of uh, beton armé, which is a kind of steel-reinforced concrete um, of interlocking units. It's a quite innovative design that architect Henri Neu introduced. So these were always moments of... Um, of terrible sorrow, but also ones in which we saw people gather together and be unified behind the idea of um, rebuilding something. Mm -hmm. I kind of further thought to that, I was reflecting on it into the morning hours at night, and I wrote something that the New York Times wasn't interested in, (laughs) but I I sent them an op-ed. But it was really about, is this about Notre Dame or about ourselves? Hmm. Uh, because as I I watched my social media explode, people who had just visited the building once seemed to express the same loss that someone who had worked on this for, you know, multiple decades felt. And I started to think about it like this. I work on, I think about these monuments as living things, living uh, monuments that exist before us and after us. Mm -hmm. And like someone's they're both like your parents and like your children. Uh, they're things you never want to lose, but they're supposed to continue on beyond you, as well. And so, to kind of lose something like this, I think there's a human response of of loss um, and a feeling of of one's own mortality, sort of wrapped up in uh, the monument, in the rebuilding. That a similar kind of psychology can be uh, thought about in terms of why one would want to invest in the sustenance or the resuscitation or resurrection or whatever you want to call it of a monument that you would hope to live beyond you. It gives you a sense of, of something uh, going on, a legend into the future. Jennifer, this
0: show will air right after Easter and, and not all of our listeners are Christians or are our believers. They, they have, they come from a variety of faith traditions, but it seems to me that not Notre Dame is, uh, is a landmark for, you know, for people worldwide of whatever religion. Do, do you find that in your, you know, in
2: your work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, of course, I approach these things as a historian. Christianity is, a, of course, an, the reason this building exists. It's a part of its history, mm-hmm. but one does not have to necessarily be a part of that faith to appreciate its grandeur. Um, to appreciate the, um, you know, the the feeling that one has inside of a a vast space. That's a, a human experience that can transcend multiple faiths.
0: Hmm.
2: You know, I
0: I've been thinking about this show oh. a lot, and I'm so pleased that you were willing to come on our show and talk about it because it, it you know, it's just something we've we've been dealing with coronavirus. We've been dealing with quarantine. We've been dealing with this this really difficult time and we thought let's let's have a sh- let's talk about a show where you know we're trying to solve another problem you know not just the one we're currently in but a problem you know that draws people together like this one does and just kind of take ourselves out of the moment and put ourselves in our thinking caps towards towards something else that we need to do that's really important and kind of when i was following that thinking i was thinking about building these huge buildings and how humans over the years have had to solve mechanical problems. They've had to solve architectural problems. They had to build a dome, which is really just an arch um, of a lot of different arches. So we're trying to solve this problem of Notre Dame, you know, and rebuilding it. What, what are the biggest challenges of rebuilding it? I mean, you know, maybe what were some of the challenges of building it in the beginning (laughs) and what are some,
2: and are those reflected today? Are they different today? Yeah. I would say it's probably more challenging now because what the the largest challenge is when you introduce fire to stone, you change the chemical properties of the stone. Hmm. And, uh, if you're working with original limestone that once that limestone again is heated up, it can become brittle, mm. and not only that, but there are certain statics involved in the construction of the um vaults. And so, uh, for your listeners, just a, a real quick uh, idea of how, how these things work the, the, the walls and in the interior of the cathedral, if you're inside of the building, the big body we call the nave. If one were to be standing just inside of the doors of Notre Dame and look up, you could turn to the walls. We would call that the nave elevation and look at the arcade of then there'd be a triforium and then clerestory windows above. That whole section connects to an interior roof called a vault, and that's made of stone. It's the wood above that vault that burned, but when that wood burned, it caused not only the stones to weaken, but some of the stones to fall in many of the areas of the vault. And so one of the first concerns of the the teams involved with the restoration process has been to make sure the building is stable. Mm. And that's still a problem currently. They've done a great deal of work to stabilize the structure initially. And what that involved uh, was putting in bracing wooden bracing. Basically what the bracing looks like is the kind of uh, wood structure that would be built in order to first construct the, um, the, the stones themselves. And in the middle ages, you would construct the vaults with what's called wooden centering in place. And then once everything was in place, that wooden centering could be removed and literally the weight of the building, the weight of the stones thrusting down the piers and then externally into the flyers, which are the what we think of as the kind of wings coming off of the building mm-hmm. and connecting to the external buttresses. Those forces have to be, um, we have to realize that once you take the roof off the building- The downward, you, the downward forces the downward are right. removed. They've been removed. And then the uh-huh. lateral uh, forces across the nave and across the choir space, um, You have if wind blows, strong enough winds that you could have a problem. Yeah. Uh, additionally, this building, th- the fire happened because, uh, well, likely because of an electrical, uh, s- some sort of electrical source. Maybe it was, we think it was the old wiring from the 70s mm-hmm. in the roof that sor- short circuited during some of the restoration work that was going on. So there was an ongoing restoration of the monument that unfortunately had some relationship to the fire there was uh, scaffolding in place for that restoration. When mm. all of that caught on fire, it superheated the metal scaffolding and it fused with the stone. So one of the major problems that wow. was mentioned by the, there, so there's a general in charge of the operations at the moment, his, his name is General Georges Lam. He mentioned that around 500 tons of scaffolding need to be removed from the stones, especially around the area of the spire. And that still has to be done. Now, of course, right now everything is in stasis because the whole world is experiencing the COVID crisis. So as much as we want to get away from it, it has this project also on hold, but it allows us to have some time, I guess, outside of that to reflect upon things. And then the next major problem was environmental, because the roof is made of lead, That polluted the environment with lead. And it was, uh, I was being advised if I were to come to France and um, this was back in, I guess it was November, I was told that I would need to have PPE, personal protective equipment, um, not for a virus at the time, but for lead. Yeah. We need blood tests before and after entering the building to make sure I hadn't been exposed. I understand that most of that contamination has been dealt with at this point.
0: So you would say that as many, as much as the, the people who originally built this without electricity, without um, the benefits of electric elevators and, you know, all the, you know, all the modern conveniences, you would say even with that, the rebuilding because of the damage is going to be more difficult than the original building.
2: More difficult, perhaps it's an engineering challenge, but maybe Um, Certainly, it won't take as long because of our techniques now are, you know, we have machinery to do a lot of what could have, uh, would have been required to be manually done. Um, We also have really interesting technology. And like I was saying earlier, digital scans have been done of this building. Those Mm -hmm. three scans are important for showing us what the structure looked like before the fire and then after the fire. And we can compare those two models digitally and see any structural changes. And so, now, are
0: you interested in a, a recreation of what was, or are you interested in a, a version of what was? An, an evolution.
2: Right. So I, I think that what has to be done is something that is going to be sustainable uh, for the building. And when I say sustainable, I mean something that is um, going to be able to allow the building to stand and last. So from my perspective, innovation has always been a part of Gothic architecture. Even Mm. it was never called Gothic in its time. It was called modern. The Latin Mm. word modernitas was used to describe it. It was innovative and it was always experimental. And sometimes it even fell down in the process um, of construction. I recall that, you know, I was at
0: the, I was, I've, I've been to Notre Dame. I've been to the Sistine Chapel, but the one that, that has always um, stuck with me is the, is the dome at Florence. Mm-hmm. And when they built it, they they didn't completely know how they were going to actually build the dome. It was, it was open.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The, the roof remained open for many years because mm-hmm. they, they didn't have, the technology and the wherewithal to build the dome.
1: I'll just think about that engineering problem
2: tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I know. That said we have certain um, guidelines in place. So there is a group called ECOMOS. This is the International Council on Monuments and Sites. They generally follow the uh, Venice Charter, which was an early charter uh, developed with this group that focuses on what one should do in the preservation or conservation of monuments. So this is, of course, not the first time a monument like this has had to go undergo some kind of major work. Uh, and so what those guidelines really suggest is that the historic principles should be maintained if at all possible, mm-hmm. but if they've been destroyed, replacing them is not necessarily required. Um, that said, the last discussions, I think this was back in January, of General Georgilan with Um, in discussing what the plans are for the building. um, He is open to this being a part of a conversation. The French already have an entire group of architects in charge of maintaining their national monuments. The the idea of this group is usually to follow these principles of the Venice Charter, and I would think that whatever they end up doing is going to be a, a mixture of innovative engineering solutions, but visually, what we see on the exterior is going to re- be quite conservative, I would think. The thing is, what you see on the exterior, what was mostly lost, was 19th century. And not a lot of people really recognize that. If you go back to historic photographs, before Violet Ledoux, the architect and chef at that time, who was involved with the restoration, if you look at the, the architectural photographs or the archival ones before him, you can see that the roof pitch was even different earlier, that some of the aspects of the flying buttresses were a little different, and in his restoration, he highly modified the monument back in the 19th century. So there's kind of a a history of this tension between the desire for historicism and the inevitability of change. Hmm. That is
1: fascinating. So a, a lot of your research, or maybe all of your research, is and expertise is on the painted sculptures specifically. Can you tell us a little bit about what makes them special, and and what your piece of this this huge puzzle, this huge problem is?
2: So as a part of uh, the 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 scientific the group who was involved with uh, first writing uh, petitioning the uh, French. President, not to make drastic changes to the building, but to take time to think about ways his, uh, historians and researchers could engage with the monument. One of the results of that is that a group of researchers was formed, and this this group is through the National Center for Scientific Research in Paris. the The French letters are C N R S or C N R S, and uh, I'm a part of the working group on stone. So there, what, what happened was. We have scientists who work on the scientific aspects of stone, like the chemical properties, uh, structural properties, and our idea was that through the collective knowledge of both scientists and historians, art historians, not only can we be involved in the restoration of the building, but we can be involved in learning more about the building through the process of restoration because of this unprecedented access to the building now as it's been opened up, literally. So what I work on are the sculptures themselves, and these are found, the ones that are of interest to me primarily are on the west facade in the portals of so the doorways that you would stand in a very long queue and wait to get into the building. Um, in the summers, if you're visiting France, you might get a chance to look up and see some of these sculptures. In the central portal, you'll find the image of the Last Judgment. So that was that's the topic of my book project, and so I had been focused on those sculptures Um, And they, in fact, were painted. One thing that's not really popularly recognized about medieval sculpture is that most of it on buildings was originally painted Mm. (laughs) and painted in ways that might seem a bit garish to us at times, like bright pigmentation. You have to imagine um, a Spanish painted wooden sculpture of Christ or something like that Mm. on the exterior of a building. And so... Another thing I think people don't necessarily recognize about sculpted portals is that most of them weren't made in just one instance. Sometimes you have uh, sculptures that are reused from an earlier monument, and they want to reuse those pieces not because they can't afford to make new ones, but because they had historic value. Hmm. And, and they, they are almost treated uh, with a relic-like quality, like they have this connection to the past. So they might Uh, There is a portal on the west facade, the St. Anne portal, that has 12th century sculptures that were reused from an earlier Notre Dame and put into the Gothic portal that was, and, and they create Gothic sculptures around it to make it look as if it was all made at the same time, but it wasn't. The 13th century portal of the Last Judgment similarly was started probably around 1220. And we can tell by looking closely at the way that the stones are joined together and also studying the styles of the sculptures to note, that the figure of Christ was done some 20 years later, and the angel around them some 20 years later. Additionally, uh, in the, I guess it was the 90s and the 2000s, this part of the building was cleaned with lasers, and while they were cleaning it, the laboratory in charge of historic monuments took samples of the stone, little, little core samples that give you stratigraphy or layers of not only the stone, but paint over the centuries that has been on this stone. So I'm interested in studying those layers of paint and, and creating a visualization in a 3D modeling program that will help uh, researchers and students alike think about the complexity of the sculptures and how they um, were developed over time. And literally they're like a palimpsest, if you're familiar with that idea. No, so maybe walk me no. through
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I am thinking like you know, some guy like it, two hundred years common. ago. Like, why is why is my paint peeling? It's probably because what somebody did two hundred years before you. Well,
2: if you're if, if you're like me and you're restoring a house from the 1980s that had wallpaper and someone painted over that wallpaper and they did the same it idea, <laughs> similar idea, yeah. Uh, or they might put wallpaper over wallpaper, and then there's another painting. And so w- by uh, taking these stratigraphy uh, these little samples you can see those different changes over time mm-hmm. and i i've been really interested in the past several years in the concept of the longevity of monuments and of the ways that interactions over time with a monument tell us about the societies and individuals mm-hmm. and institutions who inhabited those spaces and what they valued and what they cared about. I've also been interested in ways to visualize these things, um, using new technologies, uh, using laser scanning and uh, creating 3D models and so forth. So uh, I'm hoping that this project on the West facade can can do a bit of that. When did the fashion change on painting sculptures like that? Because uh,
1: I, I feel like I remember I remember seeing like sculptures in in Italy and being told, oh, these back in the day were painted, or mm-hmm. like what you're saying of uh, this facade was was painted. And it, it seems, like you said, so garish to us now. We think of, of the past being almost this pristine, white, beautiful, smooth stone,
2: mm-hmm.
1: when in reality, it, it would surprise us what it looked like. So when did that fashion change?
2: Well, I think we could find a little bit of evidence if we look at, th- this is a little bit outside of my historical field, but Classical studies scholars who work on classical monuments. I mean, we also think about those as being pristine white monuments um, But they were also brightly painted uh, monuments and that that's really a product of the 19th century mm-hmm. this idea of uniformity of creating a, a um, Aesthetically uniform building, you know, even le Ledoux's recreation of Notre Dame made it more uniform than it ever was in the Middle Ages so there's a whole discourse on color and paint. And, and there are even scholars who've looked into the kind of racial implications of some of that discourse in the 19th century. Um, but it certainly wasn't a part of the Middle Ages, nor of the Renaissance, nor of the Baroque period. Um, so it, it it does change.
1: That's just that's so fascinating. You've mentioned a couple times the use of these, this laser technology scanning to get a a really good detailed picture of what the cathedral looked like and looks like now. You also sent us some information about a really cool project that you're a part of to I guess turn some of those scans into a walkable walkthroughable virtual reality thing. Tell us about that. That seems really cool.
2: So I'm, I'm really fortunate to be um, to have been awarded a, a Whiting Foundation public engagement seed grant, which is going to allow this dream to get off the ground. So what it involves is um, I have a colleague at the University of Iowa. He also works on one of the cathedrals that I work on. So I guess we share a cathedral, uh, the Cathedral of Reims, or Reims in uh, Champagne. A couple summers ago, he scanned the building with some colleagues and I've been talking to him about ways that we could use that scan for a variety of projects. And so this is one that that we were funded for um, that will create a virtual reality experience of a cathedral. And my idea was, especially in in state of Alabama education, looking at um, curriculum for the state, history before 1500 doesn't have much space for, uh, it, is, it is not taught as much, and this is really uh, not just for Alabama, but this is for the whole country. It's it's an area of history that is receiving less and less attention. And so I'm also a part of a um, scholarly organization called the International Center for Medieval Art and um, the Medieval Academy of America. And both of those institutions highly value public engagement with scholarship and interesting students in K through 12 in the Middle Ages because if students aren't introduced to these topics early on, they're less likely to take courses with me in art history in college, (laughs) right? They're less likely to think about valuing um, a monument like Notre Dame until much later in life. And so the idea is to cultivate interest, but also to help them understand that they're not just monuments of the past, but ones that are not just a part of a dusty book, but a part of current technologies. And so I also am thinking about, the ways that what I teach can engage uh, students in learning about those technologies and learn what we might call transferable skills. So they not everyone's going to become a historian, but others might take those ideas and apply them in other ways. So, okay, all of that said, the really cool part of this is that I got to build a team and because nothing, none of this would be possible if I were doing it by myself. What I've learned as a medieval historian is that one needs to know lots of have lots of friends in lots of places. Mm-hmm. And, and so I've I'm working with a, um, visual effects specialist who has worked on multiple films. Um, you may be familiar with Avatar and King Kong and district nine. He he's done visual special effects for those things. Uh, Florida state university hired him to work with their film students to train them so that they can get jobs in the industry. And so what they will be doing is taking the scan that my colleague uh, Rob Bork and his team have made and transforming that scan into a virtual reality experience that one can view using something called Oculus Go. Uh, And I'm working with two local magnet schools, Alberta and um, Tuscaloosa Magnet Middle. My thought was this is just, you know, not based on um, scientific (laughs) education. But just of my own experience that this would be a great group to target in terms of their learning outcomes And to um, have the opportunity to work with them. So the plan is we will develop this 3d model this virtual reality experience um, and I will use it over The course of a year with their arts education media arts teachers to have the students engage with that model um, and, and think of their own ways of Uh, learning about Gothic art and architecture, but also engaging with their own built environment in the community of Tuscaloosa. So the plan is to develop a art exhibit that will involve both the VR experience and some of the works the students will produce and to have that exhibited, I'm hoping downtown in Tuscaloosa sometime next April, and we're just waiting to see how everything works with the schools and whatnot. It's what going to be a great. fantastic
1: experience. Congratulations mm-hmm. oh, on that, on that grant to, to do that. That is such a cool blending of, of so your modern technology and medieval
0: technology and all that's just, that's really, really, really cool. Thank you for walking us through that. Jennifer, um, the most famous depiction of the last judgment which is your you know your research area um of course is a sistine chapel um and i know it's not sculpture i know it's but it's painting (laughs) so were you like one of the people that laid on the floor and just like went oh (laughs) you
2: know (laughs) (laughs) if you can picture me i'm like 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 just have an amazed look on my face are you one of those it's amazing um but I, I have to say I am a sculpture person. I, I, I have this thing for three dimensions. Uh, <laughs> and there's something about Michelangelo's that's a lot scarier than the ones of the 13th century, which were much more hopeful. They weren't very they're not very friendly on the, the, no, the faces they,
0: are not, they look no, kind of tortured.
2: Well well that's hell. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, the point. That's no, All right. So, we're
0: sorry, back. Liz. I, I, broke into, I broke into your outro there. So yeah, you're
1: fine. You're fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today, Jennifer. Dr. Feltman, we really, really appreciate it. Where can our listeners learn more about your research and find you on the internet if they have questions?
2: Sure. Uh, well, th- if they just Google Jennifer Feltman, University of Alabama, they'll find my faculty page. And there are lots of links there to my research. Um, if, if someone is on academia.edu, whenever I can put an article up, you know, with without any restrictions, I'll put an article up there for free use. Otherwise, you can get them through the libraries and things like that.
1: Fantastic. Thank you so much again. Mary Scott, you've got something
0: to share with us too, don't you? Yeah, we've chosen our second quarter book club book Becoming Mrs. Lewis by Patty Callahan. Patty is the New York Times bestselling author who is also, by the way, uh, a Birmingham, Alabama native. Um, She, it is never ever in these crazy days of COVID-19 to just lose yourself in a in a great read and this is a great love story Becoming Mrs. Lewis is all about the love story of American divorcee Joy Davidman who married C.S. Lewis, author of Chronicles of Narnia and Screwtape Letters. And I I know our our listeners are going to be familiar with those, but get that book um, either through your local bookseller because they really need your business right now. Or if you want to get it at Amazon, click through our link because we get a little piece of the action. Uh, And you can also listen to um, Patty Callahan's podcast about about her book uh, in Behind the Scenes of Becoming Mrs. Lewis. I'm listening to it now and it's really great. Patty will be our guest. Patty Callahan, the author, will be our guest for our show in June when we take up her book, Becoming Mrs. Lewis.
1: Thank you so much again to all of you who listen in, and uh, thank you to Dr. Beltman for joining us today. If you want to support our podcast, visit us on uh, patreon.com slash bellcurvepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Bell.com. Thank you again. Stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk to you next week.